Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. You've probably heard about the idea of surgical transplants, but a face transplant? What exactly does that involve? And no, I'm not talking about the cool face-swapping masks you've seen in the Mission Impossible movies. I'm talking about the amazing medical development of being able to transfer the construct of a face, meaning all the layers, skin down to bone, from a deceased donor to a human in need. What kind of need? Well, it's usually more than just for aesthetics or looks. Often there are essential functions that need to be restored, such as the ability to make facial expressions, or to eat, or even to breathe well. These problems might occur after a traumatic injury to the face, but there can be other causes too. Though the concept may sound straightforward, the process of face transplantation is not a simple one. The patient selection, plus the formation and execution of the surgical plan, are as fascinating as the whole notion of face transplantation. So who better to help educate listeners about this than the plastic surgeon who heads the face transplant program at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Samir Mardini. Listen as he shares his knowledge about the captivating history and process of this astonishing procedure. Here we go. Well, I'd like to welcome Dr. Samir Mardini to our conversation today. Dr. Mardini is a plastic surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And listen to this. He is the chair of the Division of Plastic Surgery, surgical director of the Face Transplant Program, chair of the Facial Paralysis and Reanimation Clinic, and co-director of the Craniofacial Clinic. Plus, Dr. Mardini is a professor of surgery at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. Welcome, Dr. Mardini. Thank you, Regina. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. Well, I really want to thank you for being here to help educate the listeners about this fascinating topic. But first, could you just tell me briefly, what was your path to plastic surgery and to getting where you are today? I think like many of us, my passion really was to help others. And Mm -hmm. I went into medicine hoping to make a difference in people's lives. And I knew always that I wanted to do surgery. And the path to plastic surgery was kind of an interesting one for me because I went into surgery wanting to be a pediatric cardiac surgeon. Mm. And that was what I was exposed to as a child. And um, my father's a pediatric cardiologist. So I kind of liked that field in general, like the physiology, like the surgery. Sure. But during my residency in general surgery, a position opened up in plastic surgery. And somehow I ended up in that position. I'm glad you did. So I then was seeking intense, exciting aspects of the field and got interested in reconstructive microsurgery and craniofacial surgery, which together 
sort of got me interested in the field of facial reconstruction and eventually face transplant surgery. So would you say that's the current scope or nature of your practice? Uh, Do you do exclusively reconstructive cases or do you do some aesthetic surgery as well? I've always found that you need to understand the principles of aesthetic surgery. You need to practice aesthetic surgery to really do a great job with reconstruction in the face. And so that's always been a part of my practice. And I am enjoying seeing patients with facial issues that are seeking to, you know, look better and feel better. But then a lot of the things that I learned from aesthetic surgery, I'm able to apply to facial reconstructive surgery and both in pediatric and in adult patients. So like if you look at the face transplant patient, it's not just the patient wants a face transplant and the reconstructive microsurgery tools allow you to give them a face transplant. Really, the patient wants to look great and mm-hmm. looks normal. And without understanding of facial aesthetic surgery, how are you going to do that? Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. Well, so we are here to talk about facial transplantation and, and way beyond what we might imagine with science fiction. This is real life stuff. But as we embark on the topic today, could we first talk about a basic concept? What do we mean by transplanting something? So the procedures that we do on a daily basis, we call like conventional reconstructions, we're taking body parts that you have from your own body to reconstruct another body part. For example, if you're missing a nose, we're gonna take skin and tissue from your forearm to do the inner lining. We're gonna take cartilage from your ribs to do the structure. We're gonna take a flap from your forehead to do the outer lining. Or if you're missing a jaw, for example, we're gonna take bone from your leg and move it from one part of your body to another. That's also transplanting, but it's auto-transplanting. So that we're skilled at moving a body part from one part of your body to another the same like what body. We're talk- yeah, what we're talking about here is allotransplant, which is transplanting a body part from someone else and moving it to your body. And the amazing thing about facial transplantation is it is a reconstruction, but it's a restorative surgery because mm-hmm. you're not creating an organ. You're not creating a body part. You're not mm-hmm. trying to use your forearm and your forehead to create a nose, you're actually just bringing in the nose. So that's the unique part of this. So as good as we are at doing reconstructions, we're never able to do it as well as it came from naturally. Well, now other body tissues or parts have been transplanted traditionally, you know, kidney, liver, that kind of thing. But face was kind of a later addition. Why was that? Was it a more complicated procedure? The foundation of face transplantation is built on the successes of all the solid organ transplants and the field of immunomodulation. So meaning like in order to take a body part from someone else, whether it's a kidney or a face, you have to regulate the immune system. So you have to suppress the immune system. I think these organs that you're talking about, the solid organs, that's been done for years and years. Those are life-saving organs. So those are the ones that you would naturally think about when you're even entertaining the possibility of transplanting from a brain-dead donor. Nobody's going to think of the face or the hand or the uterus as an initial thought in transplantation. The life-saving organs were done first, and they were done in a way that yielded great results before we started tackling facial transplantation and hand transplant and others. Got it. And you may not recall this specifically, but about when and where was the first face transplant attempted and was it successful? No, I do know the answer really well because in our journey to learn about face transplantation, we wanted to 
understand the field. We wanted to to learn everything we can about face transplantation. So we traveled around the world to different centers that had done it to meet the surgeons that did it, get to know them really well. Nice. Uh, we had the opportunity to meet the patients. I met the the patient herself, Isabel Denoir, that had the first face transplant. Mm -hmm. So this was done uh, by Dubernard, who's a pioneer in solid organ transplant. He's a pancreas and kidney transplant surgeon. Uh, he partnered up with a surgeon named De Vauchel, and uh, they performed the first face transplant in 2005. The other teams that were also thinking about face transplant at the exact same time, Professor Lantieri in France, Laurent Lantieri is a dear friend, uh, and he's performed about eight face transplants. We went and visited him as well and got to know him. We met two of his patients. Mm -hmm. So those were the two really early thinkers in face transplantation. Well, that's great. Well, how often do these come along? How often do you think it's done now? I know it's intermittent, but as you've stated, there are only a few transplant centers around the world. Of course, Mayo Clinic being one of them. Um, how often do you think these are performed? I would say in the busiest center, it's not going to be performed more than once every two years, gotcha. you know, and even less in most centers. What you really want is to have that as a tool in your toolbox when you're evaluating a patient with a facial deformity. Mm -hmm. You're not a face transplant destination only. You're a, a facial reconstructive destination, and you're going to exhaust every other tool or at least have the ability to do everything else. And if you look at it and plan the surgery and say, I can map out 10 surgeries on this patient using conventional techniques, and I can see at the end of it that they're still going to have a face that is significantly deformed and still be noticed as somebody who's been dealing with this, you might skip that step and say, with a one surgery or maybe two, we can restore the face with facial transplantation. So it should be a tool in your toolbox, mm -hmm. not the only thing that you do. Gotcha. And in general, with the cases that have gone on worldwide since the first one, why is it typically done? And again, you alluded to the fact that you know, when other things are going to fail or have failed, this is something you can turn to. But it's not just for facial disfigurement, I would imagine, but also for some functional problems, chewing, breathing, swallowing, those kinds of things. So why is it typically done? And are there certain types of situations, injuries like severe burns or something that seem to be more common precursors to the need of this procedure? There are a variety of reasons why patients seek facial transplantation. Now, sometimes the patients themselves are seeking it. Sometimes you're looking at them and thinking about every tool that you have and right. facial transplantation becomes an obvious one. Trauma is a big one, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's a gunshot injury or a car accident or something where there's an actual physical injury to the face that causes a deformity. Mm -hmm. The other is in some situation, it could be congenital. There hasn't been a lot of congenital deformities that have been transplanted, but mm -hmm. you can see that as a possibility one day. Burn is a big one. Patients with burns, especially if it involves eyelids and other structures mm -hmm. that are very, very difficult to reconstruct. Right. Those are patients potentially for facial transplantation. Like you said, it starts off as a, you know, these patients are dealing with things every single day, people noticing them, talking about them, calling them freaks. You know, there are many ways that patients are dealt with by society when they have a facial deformity or a facial difference. And that's 
quite cruel and difficult to even understand when we're thinking about that. But all of them have major functional issues. Mm. They have issues with drooling. They have issues with speaking. They have issues with eye protection. They have issues breathing. Uh, one of the things that our patients mentioned that you know didn't really think about is he wanted to swim. He wasn't able oh. to swim without closing his mouth properly, without getting control of what goes into his nose. So wow. we had him list 10 or 15 things that he had as goals. And interestingly, that was one of them. Wow, I wouldn't have um, ever imagined that. That's he wanted awful. to be able to kiss and feel the kiss of his children. For example, oh, yeah. you know, th these are things that you may not think about, but they are, yeah. you know, we typically think function is mostly spe speech and swallowing and breathing, but there is more to it. Absolutely. Wow. That's impressive. Um, are there any situations where a person would not be a candidate for a facial transplantation? In other words, they've failed other methods of trying to reconstruct the face, but the actual concept of the transplant itself is not going to be good for them, whether they have lost vision or have other issues going on. What kind of things would make you have to say no to somebody? So when you look at the field of face transplantation, you'll see that there has been less than 50 patients done all over the world. And the field started in 2005 with the first face transplant. So it's not only an anatomic defect that's necessary and an indication for reconstruction, but also there are many other things that we'll talk about. So the patient has to be psychosocially stable. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there is a, a huge amount that goes into the process of getting someone to facial transplantation. So they have to be resilient because they're going to be dealing with a complex journey. Mm -hmm. um, they are going to have to deal with immunosuppression for the rest of their lives. They're going to have to deal with potential complications. The surgery is a major surgery. It will likely be a success, but it can fail. And the failure is quite devastating. Mm -hmm. The patient has to have the tools to deal with that kind of thing for, for a team to embark on that journey with them. Mm -hmm. The patient also has to be brave. You know, it's a new field and the patients that are doing it, they're doing it because they want a normal face, but they're also on a mission to get back to society and be normal. So they are willing to be part of a field that's new. If you look at all the face transplant patients, they are unique individuals that have convinced the team that they are good partners for the journey that it takes to get through this face transplant and make it into a real success. Because success isn't that the face just survives. Mm -hmm. Success is that the face survives, it moves, you gain the functions back that you were looking for, mm -hmm. you gain feeling, mm -hmm. and then if the, the movement of the face should be symmetric so that the end of the day, the real success is patients living a normal life, they're walking into a store. Nobody's really looking at them saying, hey, what did you have done? Or did you, where did you come from? Or what's wrong mm -hmm. with you? That's real success. And so uh, when we're evaluating patients that are potential candidates for face transplantation, we have a big team evaluating the patients, not mm -hmm. only the surgeon saying, hey, you know, this is a surgery that you should get. It's medical people looking at it. It's transplant coordinators. It's social workers, it's psychologists, psychiatrists to see if the patient is a good candidate and will do well after surgery. Mm -hmm. And then the, the last and maybe more most important thing is medically, you have to be stable and able to undergo a procedure that big and be able to tolerate the immunosuppressive medications afterwards. Yeah. 
Well, that's quite an evaluation and probably a bit rigorous for the patient, but that's what's needed in order to demonstrate that that patient really is a good candidate. So that's enlightening. I'm curious, what makes a good donor for a face transplant? Are there certain aspects about the tissues of the face itself? And then do you have to take into account ethnicities and other things that you're trying to target for this individual who's going to receive it? I wonder, are donors a lot harder to come by than, say, kidney donors or liver donors and that kind of thing? So all the potential donors for face transplantation are donors that have marked on their driver's license or have expressed interest to their families being donors for solid organs. Those are the ones that our organ procurement organization, in our case, it's uh, in our region, it's LifeSource. Those are the families that they would approach for the donors that are already marked as being interested in solid organ uh, donation. We do need to match blood type. Mm-hmm. In solid organs, we always match HLA, which is the marker of antigenicity and, and how compatible tissues are to each other. In the field of face transplantation, because the organs are so much more limited, we don't necessarily match HLA. We match Epstein-Barr virus because when you mismatch them, they tend to have proliferative disorders after surgery. And uh, CMV is kind of a soft match, but then you have to match skin color, age, size. So with age, every team has done it differently. There's been transplants that are 27 years older. There's been transplants Mm -hmm. that are younger from donors that are younger. Good point. When we looked at it, we thought our patient was about 32 at the time and that we would accept an organ that's 12 years older or 12 years younger. What happens is you decide on what is acceptable for you to evaluate Mm -hmm. when a donor comes in, and then you make a decision based on the exact situations. We also match skin type. So we thought we'd accept one skin tone darker, one skin tone lighter Mm -hmm. as a potential to evaluate. Then once we know that there's an actual donor, we would be able to, through an encrypted site, we would be able to evaluate, look at pictures Mm -hmm. and make a decision that way. Yeah. Um, there is the potential, although not has not been done, and I don't believe it should be done, to transplant a female face to a male face or the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there really isn't enough of a reason to do that. I mm-hmm. mean, we are limited in organs, but it's not enough to create that kind of potential. Added uh, psychological issues. Psychological sure. issues. Sure, sure. Um, You asked also about other aspects of indications for face transplant, and you mentioned about vision potentially. So if someone is blind Mm -hmm. in both eyes, there is a controversy as to whether they should get a transplant or not. One of the controversies is they can't monitor for rejection. So that is a worry a little bit because you do need to see that there's redness around all patients that have done well in face transplant surgery, they've had a good support network. So we don't believe that that should be uh, a reason for it. And they may not, you know, because they can't see themselves, you know, do they really need to look better so that, you know, to go through all this procedure to look better, for example, if function wasn't their major issue. And I believe that's critical because first of all, like you mentioned, and we talked about earlier, function is a huge reason for transplant, the main reason for transplant. But Just because someone cannot see what their face looks like doesn't mean that they don't know what it looks like and they don't know how other people are viewing it. So for us, those things are not a contraindication for face transplantation. We would transplant someone that's blind. 
Yeah. What about uh, the need for visual feedback for therapy exercises and things like that, being able to look in the mirror and practice? You know, yeah, I mean, and most like patients, and we deal with this with our facial reanimation patients or facial nerve patients, you know, we do like the concept of them looking in the mirror and, and trying to improve what they see and focus mm-hmm. on certain things. But we also ask them to focus on how the muscles are feeling when they're, when they're moving. So sure. feeling is also, mm-hmm. feedback, uh, sensory yeah. feedback is also important. Feeling meaning feeling the muscles moving, but also they can feel with their hands. So oh, there yeah. are many other sure, ways sure. to do that. And, and if the nerves are connected properly, really there isn't much therapy to be done. Mm-hmm. When they're laughing normally, they should create movement in the muscles that are appropriate for that. Like our patient, he did some speech therapy afterwards, which doesn't require f- for you to see. Mm-hmm. And he did a lot of stretching and massaging and things like that of the face. But as far as trying to learn how to smile or learn how to... Uh, move certain parts of the face, he didn't really need to do that because we connected the nerves that did mouth closure to the donor nerves that did mouth closure. So it didn't require retraining. Yeah. So with time, it occurred naturally. Occurred naturally. That's great. Well, I think a lot of people are curious, generally, what is involved with a face transplant? Could you take us through the process? What do we reconnect in terms of the structures and the extent of it? So with face transplant, you really can bring any type of tissue from the face, depending on what you need. So in our patient, we needed upper jaw, lower jaw, the teeth, the facial muscles, the skin, the nose, all of it came as one organ. You know, most teams have used the facial artery and vein as the main blood supply. Mm-hmm. Um, you can include the entire scalp if needed with the hair on it. If you include the entire scalp, including the back, you need to include the posterior occipital artery as well to provide blood supply. Otherwise, with just the facial artery, you can take every part of the face from skin all the way to all the bones in the upper jaw, lower jaw, zygoma, zygomatic arch, all of that can be included in the transplant. So you're really looking to see what the patient needs and what kind of deformity they have and what kind of function they're missing. And then you're starting to design the transplant accordingly. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting part about it is sometimes you have to take more than you need in order to hide incisions in favorable locations or to bring a part together. So, you know, if someone can't smile properly, you can't just take a part of the mid face. You would need to include the bones where the muscles, to get a better outcome, you would include the bones where the muscles insert Mm-hmm. Attach, uh, you would include yeah. more tissue so that your incisions can be in front of the ear like we do for a facelift rather mm-hmm. than having the incisions uh, in the middle of the face. So yeah. the first face transplant patient was missing the nose and the entire upper and lower lip. Yeah, she was. So they transplanted that part and they had a great result. But the incisions, you can see them, they're right in the mid face, right yeah. in the middle of the face. Yeah. So, you know, when you're making decisions about what to do, you have to think through that. Is it worth taking more? Is it the yeah. right thing to do? We have the fortune of having a great cadaver facility mm-hmm. so that we can go to the cadaver lab and rehearse those steps and think through them as a team, practice different ways of doing it to make a decision about what's best for mm-hmm. our patient. That's excellent. We have the fortune of having incredible donors for the cadaver lab. Because, you know, without the cadaver lab, it's impossible to do the surgery without having the ability to go to the cadaver and try different things. And then once you decide which one to get the team up to speed and to practice Mm -hmm. the different steps, 
So those things for us made a huge difference. Yeah, what a great benefit. And how big is the operative team that you require for a transplant? And how long do you think the procedures generally take? Our team, we had five plastic surgeons working on the face. We had one oculoplastic surgeon, which is an ophthalmologist that focuses on the eyelids and the eye. And then we had one other plastic surgeon who helped us procure another part of the body for monitoring. So we had a plan of taking part of the leg tissue. Most people Mm -hmm. have done the forearm Mm -hmm. to take it from the same donor and put it in the groin so that you're not always biopsying and causing scarring in the face. You can biopsy right. the the, the other part that's in the groin and you could yeah. cause as much scar as you want with minimal yeah. issues. It's not noticeable, yeah. Yeah, so that was our team. We had also some of our general surgeons, they helped with the tracheostomy and that's the core surgical team. Now, mm-hmm. if we, we had assistance within the surgery as well, but then beyond that, the team is huge. Yeah. You know, my medical partner is a transplant nephrologist who decided to focus on uh, the face. His name is Dr. Hatim Amer. He's been an incredible leader in the field of face transplantation, but also at Mayo Clinic. Uh, we have our immunologists, our coordinators, our social workers, our, mm-hmm. you know, our dermatologists. And, and I can go on for another five minutes listening yeah, to people sure. that are involved. Yeah. I also valued in a huge way our photographers and videographers and illustrators and you know, our surgical techs and operating or our nurses, there are many, many people actually decided to participate in this journey, showed up to our cadaver labs. We were in the cadaver lab 50 Saturdays over a three-year period. Oh, wow. And we have so many people come, you know, our anesthesiologist, you know, you can't do this without anesthesiologist. They came to the cadaver lab so that it's not a new thing the first time they see this in in the operating room. That's really smart. And about how long did the procedure take, the transplant once? So if you look at the various times at different centers, it's taken anywhere from 18 hours to our procedure took 56 hours. So um, ours took a very, very long time, but we focused on getting everything right, the facial nerve and everything else. So there's so many things that it depends on. We also did something that others have done too, and it really was the right thing to do is bring the donor to be side by side in two different rooms. So for example, many of the kidney transplants, the organ is procured in another hospital. It comes to your hospital for the transplant to happen. We believe that having it side by side was critical. So one is for the timing of it, two for the ability to go back and forth between two rooms, make sure things are coordinated properly. So we had that fortune as well. That's really clever, I think. And our team at LifeSource, the organ procurement organization I work with, they are absolutely phenomenal. They were an amazing partners. Obviously, without them, you can't even consider any of this thing because they are the team that coordinates the organs and educates, talks to the families. They needed to be educated. Over many years, they did a lot of research. They went and visited other organ procurement organizations mm-hmm. when they had experience with it to offer this to our donor families as well. And they helped us navigate this thing about transferring the donor Mm -hmm. so that we can do the surgery side by side. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to ask you now is what kind of recovery a patient might expect after a face transplant in terms of immediate post-op to way down the road with what you consider final results. We, we prepared for the transplant for years. And when the patient came for the transplant, he was in amazing shape. He was eating healthy, working out. He said, you did your part. 
I wanted to do my part. So he came in in great condition, which I think is really important for the recovery. Yeah, it's nice. We kept the patient in the hospital for two months, probably not necessary to do a full two months. I think we wanted to do the maximum possible to make sure that we were not running into any surprises. So he was in the hospital for a few weeks. During that time, we had the opportunity to get him awake and walking around and starting to get stronger. We don't expect any facial movement really for about two to three months at least. He started having some movement around that time on one side, which did make us a little nervous until we started to seeing the other side of the face moving as well. His sensory recovery was progressive over time. We started seeing some sensation around four or five months, and then it continued to evolve over time. And even until today, there's probably some evolving. I think that went on for about two to three years for the sensory recovery of the face because we did connect sensory nerves as well so they can have normal feeling. Yeah. And they take it some time. When the patient starts to recover facial movement, you don't necessarily need them to do too much. Really, a, a great therapy is doing normal things like laughing and talking. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, you could look in the mirror to start to see if you can improve some of the movements that you're having. But a lot of it just comes natural, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is a lot to, that needs to be done with immunosuppression. We actually had him sort of practice taking pills a couple of times a day or, you know, just before the surgery, just to, to get used to being on time. Because these things, if you don't follow the, the regimen and the timing of the immunosuppressive medication, you could set yourself up for a low grade of a rejection, which mm -hmm. eventually can harm the organ. Mm -hmm. It's pretty crucial. Yeah. That part is really crucial. And it's amazing, the discipline that is required. And just to clarify for the listeners, this is lifelong immunosuppression. This is not something the patient just takes for a while and then, you know, hey, I'm done. Exactly. You're right. And, you know, interesting when you say that, it brings something to mind that I learned along the way, too, is, you know, when we have discussions about whether children are candidates for face transplantation, an interesting point comes up is that, you know, they can't make the decisions from themselves. Do the parents have the right to commit them to this big of a surgery and lifelong immunosuppression? Oh, right. But one of the things that comes up too that we've seen in solid organ transplantation is the children that have a heart transplant early on, they're young and their parents are very involved in their care. They give them the medication on time. Everything is perfect. Once they get to the teenage years, they don't know their lives without the organ, so they take it for granted. And they're starting to do the normal things that teenagers do and getting more and more independent and they stop the medication or they don't take it on time. It is a big deal to take it on time. It is a big deal to be strict about it. And that's the best way for us to assure that besides just the healthy lifestyle in general, taking immunosuppressive medication at the right dose at the right times and following levels and seeing their care, that's the best thing that we could do to preserve the organ for as long as possible. Yeah. Well, taking the immunosuppression lifelong, does that increase risk of infection in general or create other potential problems? So the medications, they're not benign, meaning that they're not, you know, without some cost. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the financial part of it, but it, yeah. it is a little bit of an expense on your life. It does make you a little bit more vulnerable to normal colds and other infections. It also increases your risk of skin cancers. Your exposure to the sun becomes a little bit more tricky. Yeah. 
There are other diseases that are linked to immunosuppressive medications, but in general, patients are able to live a normal life, engage in normal things. They're not limited in what they can do, but you are more likely to get sick because your immune system is somewhat suppressed. Yeah. You know, we've talked about the medical issues and we touched on psychological issues a little bit. I'm curious, just in general, with the various patients who have had face transplants in the past, you know, so much of our self-identity seems to be wrapped up in our appearance. And I wonder the effect that seeing someone else's face in the mirror now might have on a patient. Granted, what they started with was such a problem that it drove them to this. But I wonder if there is a period of time where some psychological therapy is necessary to kind of help them get over this hurdle, so to speak. As you mentioned, patients that are receiving face transplantation, they didn't have a normal face at the time that they moved to the face transplant. So they've all had significant facial deformities and lived with them for years. Uh, And a big question, like you're mentioning here, is will they accept the organ? Will they accept that face as their own? Mm -hmm. I can tell you there's one patient that had face transplantation elsewhere that started developing proliferative issues, like issues with their blood as a result of a mismatch in EBV, Epstein-Barr virus. And removing the face was the treatment, you know, in order to stop this. And they refused to remove the face. Wow. They didn't want to get rid of this face that they finally got. Yeah. Our patient, um, we asked him this question. After he saw himself in the mirror, this was about at around three weeks, we asked him for the two, three days, we started asking him questions. And at one point he said, for years, every time I had a dream and I was in the dream, I saw myself with my normal face. I never saw myself with the facial deformity face. And after this transplant, I just have a dream and I dream of myself in the new face. Wow. That is so powerful. It's so amazing. It's, it's oh, just... Talk about life transforming. So he incorporated that face immediately. It became his and that's how he sees himself. Yeah. That's just beautiful. Oh, I love that. Well, gosh, as we wrap up here, I'm just curious what we are as a medical specialty still working on for face transplants. What still needs to improve, do you think? Or what would you like to see in the future that might facilitate the procedure and its recovery, if anything was possible? I think one of the big things right now for face transplantation is that it becomes a standard of care. Mm -hmm. One of the issues right now that we're dealing with in the field of VCA, which is vascularized composite tissue outlet transplantation, that includes face, hand, uterus, and and abdominal wall, Mm -hmm. is that this field started off The transplants were all performed under IRB protocols, meaning they're research protocols. And they were funded by different entities as a research. And so to transition that from research to clinical practice is always a challenge. And we did ours as a clinical program. Our program was set up not as a research program, but as a clinical program. Excellent. Meaning that we go through the normal steps that you would to start off any program, which has a lot of checks and balances and and oversight by the institution, we saw this procedure as a procedure that that had been performed multiple times before with great success. And the part that's research is understanding psychosocial impacts of the procedure, the long-term effects on the immune system and on the organs through immunosuppression. So 
insurance companies have not come on board in fully supporting facial transplantation, mm. not because they don't see it as something that offers patients an amazing opportunity, but they are going through the normal steps of how they think through covering a procedure, which is after hundreds of procedures performed, data is collected, it clearly demonstrates a benefit in scientific way, whether it's randomized controlled trials or other things, which is very hard to do with a field like face transplantation. Sure. So the centers are working together to collect data and try to clearly demonstrate the benefits of face transplantation. Because remember, when you're looking at the cost of face transplantation, you're not comparing face transplantation procedure to doing nothing. You're mm -hmm. comparing face transplant procedure to performing 15 other surgeries. Sequential, yeah. That are still going to produce an outcome that's not uh, necessarily the best possible outcome. Yeah. So that needs to be weighed out as well for insurance companies and teams when they're considering facial transplantation. The biggest issue outside of cost is immunosuppression. If the immunosuppression would be figured out that minimal is required or nothing is required, uh, and there's other ways to control the rejection issues that could happen, you would be transplanting nose or an ear or missing parts of the face without thinking too much about it. Yeah. Right now, every procedure that we do in medicine, you have to weigh the risks and the benefits and the risks that come with immunosuppression make it very much more challenging to choose face transplantation for patients missing just small parts of the face. So when we've come together as a group in the field of face transplantation, try to clearly define indications, it is challenging. So we are, you know, we say involving major, big parts of the face, involving sphincters of the face, like the mouth and eyes, which are hard to reconstruct, you know, try to define certain percentages of the face that are required for you to say this is clear indication for face transplantation. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we had that? Well, Dr. Samir Mardini, you have been so informative for the listeners today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Any final thoughts you have about our subject today or plastic surgery in general that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, there are many things that come to mind. I think one thing is, you know, we all work in teams and we can't do anything without the teams that we work around. And I think also in addition to the team at Mayo Clinic, that was a major part of uh, performing the surgery. Our patients are an incredible force, you know, that they're willing to take this journey with us and to do something that hasn't been done thousands of times before. And I think my colleagues around the world that are involved in face transplantation, they've been so kind and generous in sharing knowledge with us. We're sharing it with others. We're all working together to collectively improve the field. We care about our patients. We care about the field of face transplantation. And every single team member around the world in face transplantation is actually collaborating with each other to do what's best for patients. Oh, that's great. And that's a great way to leave it. Thank you so much for being here. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded. <laughs>